Welcome to The Observatory. I'm Jessica Helfand. And I'm Michael Beirut. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our show is sponsored by MailChimp, which celebrates creative empathy in the world and creative chaos on the web. MailChimp. On each episode of The Observatory, we talk about a few topics that are on our minds and in the air. It's the end of the year, and so we're going to talk about some of the things that struck us uh, that we've seen in 2014. It's also... I. I think I can say this, Jessica, your last recording uh, that we're going to do for this podcast from Paris, where it you've is. been living temporarily. So let's talk about that photo project you've been doing, Paris 140. What is it? Paris 140 is my Twitter feed that I started uh, in mid-August when I came to Paris, knowing I was going to be here for approximately 140 days and very much pegged to the idea that Twitter allows for 140 characters So it's one sentence, one picture every day that tries to tell a story. Paris is such a well-photographed city. It seems like it must feel like there's a lot of pressure if you're taking pictures with a view towards getting them out there into the world to be original. Or do you find the quintessence of it is just uh, so enveloping that you just succumb to it? Designers who are listening will understand this, and artists will understand this too, that the more you do something, the more you understand a way to do it. So the more I looked through Paris through the lens of my camera, the more I started to see certain patterns. You know, why are the Parisians obsessed with mannequins? I have never been in a city with this many mannequins. They're everywhere. Um, or the way fresh fruit is photographed, or the way monuments are concealed by other kind of quotidian things. So the more I did it, the more I started to find my own voice in doing it. Um, but then there were also things that were I, I really tried to avoid. I mean, there's, there's tropes, there's memes, there's, I don't know why it is, and, and certainly every city has their version of this, why is it that everybody who stands in front of the Louvre positions themselves as though they're picking up I.M. Pei's glass triangle with their fingers. So I was obviously looking to do different things. And over time, I found I just really wanted to get lost. And so there were days when I would work all morning and go out and, and walk for four hours and really try to get lost and shoot what I could. And I shot a lot of signage. I shot a lot of typography, um, things that were spelled wrong, things that were funny, amazing art deco kind of over-the-top uh, extreme versions of, of signs and of uh, buildings and of numbers and of all sorts of things that, you know, Paris is one of these cities where things don't change with the rapid speed that they do in places like New York and, and certainly many of the cities I've lived in the United States. So for me, it's been an incredible experience, and I'm hoping to actually start a series of books where we at Design Observer invite other people in other cities to do their version of, you know, what would Barcelona 140 be? What would London 140 be? What would Tel Aviv 140B. I think it's a really nice way to capture a city given the presumed short attention span of the viewing and reading public. One thing that really interested me, you mentioned at the beginning that 100-day project I've taught a few times, and uh, uh, one thing that without me intending it to happen, people in New Zealand, Australia, Europe, different cities in America now have sort of said that they were doing this 100-day project. And I, and I wonder whether or not uh, it would be interesting to provoke um, you know, people living anywhere and everywhere, Moscow, Mumbai, um, you know, Antarctica, Des Moines. Yeah. So say a little more do... about the 100-day project. How did you initially define it? And what was it other than the fact that there was a time limit? What was it you actually asked those students initially to do? 
it's very simply stated, pick a design operation and repeat it every day for 100 days and then look at the body of work you've created after that period. Different things happen, predictable at first, but then inevitably surprising. I think what happens, what I, I, because of course I've been teaching for many years at Yale also, and I got to witness those projects, and it certainly had something to do with my doing this um, as well. And I, th- I think what starts to happen is if you do the same thing every day, you start in spite of yourself to build a body of work around one thing. And so, you know, once you set yourself that the confines of that assignment, for example, I'm going to draw a line every day, or I'm going to draw yeah, a yeah, circle yeah, yeah. every day, or I'm going to photograph the same tree every day, it accumulates. And there's this feeling that you're actually doing something, and then it becomes kind of fun. If you try this at home, listeners, what you'll find <laughs> is that... Um, 100 days is a lot of days. And it's a by, lot of days. Yeah, by, by about the 12th or 13th day, you sort of start thinking, what have I gotten myself into? This is like uh, the slowest, deadliest trudge through, through boredom that I can imagine. But then, just almost as a reaction, your imagination comes to the rescue, and you'll just somehow start doing something that morphs that original impulse into something new, then something new again, and something new again. So the most interesting things I saw a lot of times just had to do with people kind of surmounting the challenges of boredom, the challenges of redundancy, the challenges of uh, feeling there was no gas in your tank, you know. So here we are at the end of 2014. Michael, what were some of your favorite things this year? I know you were very excited by by the reopening of the Smithsonian's Cooper Hewitt Museum in New York. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, I'm a New Yorker. Uh, well, I'm actually from Ohio, as, as I've told you many times. But I've been living in New York now since 1980. And one of the treasures of New York, and, and for a long time an underappreciated dusty treasure, has been this museum far on the Upper East Side called the Cooper Hewitt. It's the former Andrew Carnegie Mansion, a huge beautiful but formal. Yeah, there's a kind of Hogwarts quality to it, right? It is very, if you picture Hogwarts, that's exactly what the Cooper Hewitt looks like. And I've always thought for years that it was um, a little bit of a lost cause, perfect for exhibiting, you know, a survey of 19th century doilies and handkerchiefs, but really ill-suited to addressing uh, contemporary design. And the interesting challenge that every single person that's worked with this mansion has had to face was how do you actually talk about contemporary design when you're surrounded by such an overwhelmingly formal, I would say oppressively formal setting. So um, uh, a few years ago, um, the museum under the leadership of uh, Caroline Bauman embarked on this um, uh, major renovation project that I have to admit is really a, a triumph and well worth a Uh, I would say a mandatory visit for anyone coming to New York. They have gone through the whole thing and really, I think, figured out clever ways to augment it, to add to it, to insert into it places and spaces where contemporary design can live. I was in Amsterdam a few weeks ago and went to the reopening. It's now been open for quite some time, but for me, this was the first time in many years I'd been to the Rijksmuseum, which was beautiful Mm, and now has an open kind of atrium, and and, uh, there's a skating rink outside, and it's, of course, very flat, and everybody rides their bikes, and it seems much more accessible, but you're still dealing with these paintings that are just gargantuan in size. I mean, the Night Watchman, it is so big. It's the size of an entire room, and they did wonderfully 
kind of delicate things like uh, manage to bring in light from the ceiling but not damage the works on paper and find color palettes that work very systematically and elegantly with all the paintings. But the sheer scale and magnitude of these pieces of works of art, I think, presented a very different challenge to architects and people involved in the renovation of exhibitions because they are make no mistake, this is a 17th century Dutch painting and it's not going to get smaller or be able to be projected on a wall. So in a sense, what I think is great when I hear you talk about the Cooper Hewitt is that it, it seems like it's, it, it holds on to that sense of honored tradition, but it's really embracing all of the kinds of things that design can and, and should be doing in the 21st century. I think it's really hard and really challenging for curators to figure out how to actually uh, answer the question about what a museum is in the 21st century. And I was really pleased to see the Cooper Hewitt do exactly what you said without really uh, disavowing the the tradition of that setting. And is there a new show up? Um, well, they have a number of shows that are sort of all opened at once. And the permanent collection has never looked better. I sort of uh, was there and I ran to someone I knew and they said, what do you think? And I, I sort of blurted out, I think this is like borderline pornography. It's just, it's like so, you know, it's just like <laughs> one, it's, I mean, I, I, you just take such kind of plain, old-fashioned pleasure. It's sort of th things they've done where they just took, you know, um, took a bunch of things that are red and put them together. So it's an Eames chair that's red. It's an original uh, painted uh, illustrations from Joseph Albers, The Interaction of Color, a poster that's red. And you sort of see it all together and sort of, um, on one hand, it sort of seems, you know, like one of those kind of almost too easy one-liner-ish pedagogical sort of tactics. Let's just take all the red things and put them together, but what red things they've got to work with. Holy cow. And so um, it's one of the, my favorites of the year and something I'd highly recommend. You must have seen some amazing things in Paris, so I'd guess though, right? The thing that really uh, stayed with me is something I saw last spring when I was here, which was the retrospective at the Musée des Arts Décoratifs, which is the, the decorative art museum as part of the Louvre, where they tend to have design shows. And this was a retrospective of a French graphic designer named Philippe Appelois. Now, Philippe actually taught at Cooper Union. Uh, he may be quite familiar in to us. In New York. Uh, yeah. In New York. He may be very familiar to some of our American listeners, um, North American listeners. Um, he's one of many gifted French designers, and I've I've been blessed to meet some of them. One of the things that French designers have the opportunity to do when they work in the cultural sector is design posters that are of a scale that we do not see in the United States. These are enormous posters. Um, I think they're, I don't know, four and a half feet by six feet. Uh, they hang in kiosks. They hang in metro stations. And Philippe is one of the designers here who has been blessed by having the opportunity to do them. And this exhibit was really remarkable because to walk into a museum like the Louvre that is the scale of the Rijksmuseum, it's this just enormous palace, and to walk into a room and see all these posters was not only astonishing, but the way the exhibit was uh, orchestrated was done in such a way that you could actually see the sketches for the posters and the maquettes for the posters and what he rejected and how he created an iterative method for making things. And that was, I think, just the most mesmerizing thing that you don't ordinarily see. I mean, you know, if we all had the opportunity to go see the Night Watchman and see all the sketches leading up to it and, and you know, how the lighting changed over time, I mean, there's something very humbling about that for the maker to actually share that process with the public. 
Um, and at the same time, the posters themselves are just remarkable. Uh, how great you say that, because it just so happens that right in that section of all those red things that I was talk- rhapsodizing about a moment ago at the Cooper Hewitt, uh, Philippe has a beautiful big red poster. And adjacent to it, just as you described, are a bunch of uh, early sketches for the poster. When I went to this uh, preview of it they had earlier this week, standing right in front of it was the designer himself, Philippe Applebois. And so I, uh, I, I know him a little bit. I, I reintroduced myself, and I asked if I could take his picture, sort of thinking this is my paparazzi moment. This is as close as I'm going to get to meeting uh, Jennifer Lawrence at the opening of the Hunger Games. I'm meeting Philippe Applebois at the opening <laughs> of the Cooper Hewitt, so I took his picture. It's, it's, and, it's all downhill from here, Michael. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, uh, fanboy that I am, I, uh, I'll put that picture up on our site at Design Observer so you can uh, enjoy so everyone can enjoy that but it was uh it's I would say you know, fanboy and design nerd yeah exactly exactly so uh uh if you can't get to, to see the show it's uh they have a great new website that's well worth checking out as well and um i think it's a really nice testimony to the nation's commitment to design that the smithsonian has invested in and supports um, a facility like this and makes it available to the public. And it is a Cooper Hewitt is, is actually one of the um, Smithsonian museums. And so there's, um, for those of our listeners who can't get to New York to see it, there are catalogs. I think there's a catalog for this new show. And similarly, the uh, Philippe Applebois did a monograph that exists. I'm, I'm fairly certain it's uh, available in the States. I know it's available here. And in the book, it, he shows these sort of evolutionary drawings yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and sketches. And it's, you know, it, it reminds us that books, in fact, can be kind of like traveling exhibits themselves. And I probably spent as much time here in Paris at the Pompidou bookstore as I spent in the Pompidou itself. Um, and it makes me wonder, um, just on the subject of books, since we're talking about uh, our roundup yeah, for 2014, 2014. what did you read this year that you loved? The one book that I bought multiple copies of and gave it away to friends is a memoir. It's not about design, but it's about kind of the struggle of being a young creative person in the big city, whatever the big city is for you. It's this beautiful memoir by this uh, uh, woman named Joanna Rakoff called My Salinger Year. And it's a very funny, lovingly told story uh, about uh, her memories of arriving in New York with a liberal arts degree uh, as an ambitious uh, young writer and taking a job with like the last living literary agent in New York who didn't have a computer, made everyone type on uh, uh, IBM Selectrix with carbon paper inserted between the copies. Everything is kept on file cards. It's sort of, it's like this weird kind of, uh, uh, you know, Dickensian sort of uh, uh, holdover in 1990s New York. Uh, this woman's pleased to get her job there and discovers that um, the, 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 this unnamed in the book, literary agent's biggest and kind of like key client is the legendarily reclusive author, J.D. Salinger. And of course, Salinger actually makes an appearance halfway through the time she's working there and all this other stuff happens. There's a moment of typography that you'll find kind of intriguing, I predict, with uh, the author of the book kind of looking on. Salinger decides, to everyone's astonishment, that he's going to republish one of his early unpublished short, his last really epic unpublished short story that ran in the New Yorker and was never published anywhere. A very, very small uh, press makes an offer to republish it. Salinger, for some reason, everyone's surprised, says yes. Suddenly the whole office is mobilized that all of a sudden this uh, author who hadn't published in decades might have a new book coming out. And there's a lot of 
of kind of comic and kind of wild going back and forth about Salinger specifying exactly how he wants the spine of the book to appear. And it's described in the book. Everybody's uh, a designer. <laughs> it's described in the book in this way that sounds so weird and idiosyncratic that I finally just like decided to gamble and I actually Google search it and bang, there's an image of what it was supposed to look like. It was never published. Salinger got pissed off because the uh, the small press publisher, you know, I think listed it on Google and or uh, or not on Google but on Amazon and suddenly the press was all alerted and he was mad that he had sort of like gone public with it prematurely. But there's an image of what Salinger wanted the spine to look like and it is really, truly nutty. And um, the book is not about typography. I don't want to lead anyone wrong but it is about you know, a young person seeking a creative career, moving to New York and finding themselves in this milieu that provides all these different lessons, and the lessons in the end are fairly deep. So it's a, it's not a book about design at all, but I think there I found a lot of lessons in it myself and liked it enough that I gave it to, um, you know, half a dozen people. When I listen to you say this, I'm so glad you're talking about a book that's not a design book because I myself find the most inspiration I get from the books I read I have nothing to do with design. I'd rather go look yeah. at the world, but I'd rather read really great writing. And um, in my own case, I, I am uh, absolutely obsessed with the writing of Rebecca Solnit. Mm, Her yeah. newest book is called The Far Away Nearby. Um, it's published by Viking. It came out uh, last spring. And actually, what's interesting about this book, many things about this, she's a, she's a walker, she's a writer, she's an explorer, she's an incredible linguist. The book is, it takes its title from actually something that Georgia O'Keeffe said. She referred to her little corner of New Mexico as the faraway nearby. Mm, it's this very yeah, sort of yeah. poetic image when we're all sort of disconnected and we're, we're relating to each other virtually and we write emails, but we're in different countries. You know, here you and I are having this conversation in two different countries. Um, but the book itself is actually organized in a beautifully visual way. The, the first chapter and the last chapter have the same title and it becomes kind of this bifurcated um, a set of chapters that that it's like a palindrome. And she writes about relationships, she writes about travel, she writes about her mother. Um, it almost doesn't matter what she writes about. It's all sort of one big journey. And, and not to get too saccharine about it, but she she's just a, a, somebody who uses language the way a, a painter uses painting. And I find it, I, I just can't get enough of it. It mm, sounds beautiful, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, did you see any movies you liked this year? One of the movies that has stayed with me all year is a movie that came out this uh, earlier this year called Ida. It was um, a Polish film uh, directed by Paweł Pawlikowski. It took the Polish Academy Award for Best Actress. Uh, it's an astonishing film, not so much because of the plot, um, which is a very simple one, uh, but really about the acting and about the cinematography, which is just extraordinary. My favorite movie of the year was Whiplash, and it's basically a very simple story about a kid who wants to be the best drummer in the world and his uh, teacher in a Juilliard-type music uh, conservatory who just pushes him to the breaking point. And the whole movie is basically this battle of wits, battle of will between this young, passionate kid and this brutally hard-driving teacher played by uh, J.K. Simmons. The drummer is played by a guy I'd never heard of, never seen before, named Miles Teller. Evidently, he does his own drumming. The drumming is amazing in the movie, even if like, yeah, like even if you don't think you sort of care about drumming. Uh, it's uh, about jazz drumming, and there's climactic sequences that basically are prolonged drum solos. Now, I used to think if I never heard another drum solo in my life, I'd 
die quite content. However, the drum solos in this are sort of the equivalent of any great movie sequence you've ever seen. What I really like about it is that the, the this young, very talented drummer is portrayed a, as a little bit of a jerk, maybe even quite a bit of a, a jerk. He's arrogant. <laughs> he's single-minded. He's sort of... You know, in a way, uh, uh, J.K. Simmons plays sort of the frightening drill sergeant type bad guy, but, uh, um, uh, you know, Andrew, the, the drummer, played by Miles Teller, is hardly an angel himself. He, he's sort of exasperating, as people with real creative visions tend to be. And so I think it's a very, very faithful representation of what uh, uh, the creative struggle is, where it's not just the artist is a genius and everyone else get out of the way, but the artist can be an asshole, too. And I think uh, watching these people sort of like find the good and bad side of their natures while they're all seeking transcendence through art is just kind of amazing. And, um, uh, you know, that whole theme of creativity, creativity denied, creativity, you know, obscured kind of runs through the whole thing. Which is exactly the topic of the film that I wanted to talk about, which is uh, Finding Vivian Meyer. It's a documentary. Uh, story is about a, a nanny. She was born in 1926. She spent her formative years in France. She had a accent that can't quite be placed and she was an indefatigable photographer. She, her day job was as a nanny. Uh, she was something of a hoarder uh, and she had a remarkable eye. She traveled everywhere with these little kids in her wake but always with a giant Roliflex around her neck. And the film does several things. It, it certainly goes to the controversy of uh, who owns this work. The work was actually found um, by a guy called John Maloof, who's a historian, who picked up a box of undeveloped photo negatives at an auction. And what happened next was that he discovered this incredible uh, tour de force collection. She had never shown anything during her lifetime. She died in some obscurity in 2009. And um, the movie is really incredible. It's incredible to see the work. Uh, the story unravels. It's disturbing in places. She was not uh, a person who um, was fond of people. She was an odd person. She was a strange-looking person, although in some photographs of her, she really looks like Isabella Rossellini, and, and she's quite stunning. She was about 6'4". Um, but she took these remarkable pictures. And I have to say that not only have I seen the film twice, but when I was in Amsterdam a few weeks ago, uh, the photography museum there had a show of her work. And one of the things they did with these prints is they printed these portraits that she shot of, so they're vernacular portraits, right? They, she shot them on the street to unsuspecting people. And because she looked down through the lens of her camera, there's always this kind of unusual angle that goes up sort of towards mm. the chin of the yeah, person yeah. she's shooting. And they printed these, they made these prints essentially life-size so that when you're walking through the exhibit, you're looking at these faces and they're the same size as your face. In some mm. cases, larger. But they're just extraordinary. And of course, the, the negatives were quite large. And so the detail is really just extraordinary. Really, really amazing. Amazing story. You know, one of the themes that runs through the movie is no one knew she was doing this, basically. She no one knew no she was one. doing it. And I think I think we, we're living at a time when everybody's a photographer, and so the idea that this could be any of us, that anybody could be a street photographer, is, I think, especially compelling. Somehow, if this movie had come out 20 years ago, I don't think it would have been the resounding success it's been, because I don't think people would have taken it to heart. Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. There's something about uh, the image culture, to quote-unquote, that we're all in, that is sort of dominating things uh, in a way that is... Um 
you know, unique to our time. So um, that was a, that's a documentary. My favorite documentary that I saw this past year came out at the very end of last year, and it was actually done by HBO uh, and just appeared on television here. And it's a documentary about the um, uh, American composer Stephen Sondheim. He, he writes Broadway musicals, and just like drum solos, Broadway musicals are a polarizing thing. I know a lot of people who... Uh, just you, you say Broadway musical and they say, see you later. Um, they just don't want any part of them. But this is the ca he's the caviar of Broadway musicals. Oh, I mean, I, I, I would make the case that he's America's greatest living artist in any medium. And he went to my high school. Really? He did indeed. Holy cow. Well done. So Sondheim's really remarkable. And, and what's, you know, and you may know, our, our listeners may know him in a number of different ways. As a wunderkind, he um, was uh, recruited to write the lyrics to a experimental adaptation of the Romeo and Juliet story by a bunch of uh, brainy, overeducated, artsy-fartsy classicists, uh, Leonard Bernstein and the choreographer Jerome Robbins. And that turned into, of course, uh, West Side Story. Coming out of that success, he wrote a whole series of amazing musicals, including um, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, Company, Pacific Overtures, Follies, Assassins. Into just, the uh, Woods. Into the Woods, which is coming out as a major motion picture. So, he, so he's really great. And what's great about this documentary, and even if you don't care about uh, Broadway musicals or Stephen Sondheim, what's, what's to admire about the documentary, uh, directed by, and conceived by a collaborator of his name, James Lapine, who in fact studied graphic design at the California Institute of Arts. It uh, all comes back to it graphic design. It all comes design. together, baby. Um, <laughs> he, he's done this great thing where he's collaged interviews. In a single passage, you'll see Sondheim kind of making a point or telling a story, and it'll be pulled from a black-and-white TV interview he did in 1959. The sentence he starts there will be completed by an interview he did in 1964 on a talk show. Building on that, a sentence that he does like in 1973. It's, he's, he's got such a way with language, and uh, James Lapine and his team kind of managed to kind of take that his love of language and translate that into this filmic expression, which is just really, really impressive. And it sort of is, uh, just like I think Rebecca Solnit, kind of a testimony to how powerful language can be. So let's talk about language, Michael. Let's talk about our favorite or our least favorite words of the year. And I'm going to start with one that uh, is the opposite, as far opposite as you can get from Sondheim, is the word hack. Now, <laughs> hacking has become kind of a synonym for design. I recently, actually here in Paris, they did a maker fair, and then there was this poster somewhere I saw recently that said, you know, are you a tinkerer? Are you a hacker? Are you a designer? Well, come join maker fair. And I just made me want to break out in hives. Now, I realize this may be, you know, single-handedly evidence of my, you know, quick skip into the uh, middle age uh, of my life. But in fact, uh, I actually did a little research on this, and the word hack itself has a checkered past. Of course, it's slang. It means someone who's not very good at his or her job. It's also prison slang, which I did not know. Did you know this, Michael? Wow, it's a, de it's no a derogatory acronym for a guard. It stands for horse's ass carrying keys. <laughs> Which I did not know. In politics, it's a manipulator. It's, it's actually got a, a, a meaning in falconry. It's a training method for young birds. And it's what they call a cabbie in places like London and yeah, oddly yeah, Philadelphia, yeah. which comes out of the uh, reference to the hackney carriage. But what I didn't know, and of course, more recently, hacking comes out of programmer subculture, that it's a term that goes all the way back to the MIT lab in the 60s. And of course, the MIT lab is the apex of sort of all things common 
computational. And back in the 60s, and of course since, it purported to have a kind of Socratic quality. So you hacked as a way to troubleshoot your way through a kind of knowledge acquisition. So if a theoretician of the humanities engages in debate, or a designer in art school or architecture school engages in critique, hacking was your way to troubleshoot. But, you know, at its core, if you look it up in the Oxford English Dictionary, it's a violent word. It means to cut or to kick. <laughs> it's a gash or a gesture of attack. It's a laceration or a wound. And, and I just find that that kind of, you know, vicious, vituperative language has this kind of, it's, you know, we're, designers are about communication, and communication is about clarity, and clarity is about humanity, and, and reaching people in some way that really shouldn't be about gashes and wounds. And so I, 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 re, I remain really um, uh, kind of vexed by this word. I hate this word. Yeah, no, I think partly, part of its appeal must be that, you know, some of the richest people in the world kind of describe themselves as hackers, and uh, if they're doing it, there must be something to it that the rest of us have to pile on about. And I think 2014, I think, just saw a lot of words from Silicon Valley just start getting thrown around somewhat promiscuously. Uh, uh, words that I sort of have to admit I'm kind of oblivious to, or phrases I'm oblivious to. Like I was in a, a student uh, design school critique yesterday, and one of the other uh, people that were there to give a crit started talking about the, the student in question de delivering a minimum viable product, which is, uh, I think, something that's thrown around quite a lot about in Silicon Valley, sort of what's the thing you really need to kind of like get another thing, proof of concept out there in front of, uh, in front of the marketplace. But I mean, um, But it seems hey, really, it seems really <laughs> corporate. It's, it's a very oh, corporate yeah, word just, for art school. <laughs> Yeah, not just corporate, but just sort of like what? I mean, it's, I mean, like why? Like why would you want to <laughs> encourage people to be viable and minimal and produce product? I think all three of the words together are like not good when it comes to design school. But um, you know, and then you know, like the use of form factor when people really mean form, I guess, and like I guess factor makes it sound like you know, that there's some kind of factors being brought to bear on it. I don't quite even know um, what that sort of means. Um, and there's one word that I actually hear professionally quite a bit, which is a new one that's very much on the rise, which is um, activation. Activation? Ever, activation. No, so, tell so me about in, activation. In, oh, in, in the design world now, like you do a design, like you design a logo, let's say, and then now clients will say, um, hey, do you think we can see some activations of this, some brand activations? And what they really, I think, mean is can you Photoshop the logo like onto the side of like a bus? <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> so it'll hence. Exactly. So it'll hence, you know, then it'll be act. But it's sort of like, you know, asking that question makes you sound like childish or childlike or kind of dopey. But act, asking for it to be simply activated, who doesn't want to be active and who doesn't want to be activated? And the weird thing is, immediately, like within months, that sort of turned into sort of a word, you know, like, um, yeah, we're working on those activations right now. You know, those activations will get to you by COB. You know, it's like, what? You know, I mean, I don't know. It's sort of... No, um, it's, it's, um, it's like liquidity <laughs> event. I thought it was a plumbing term. So it's not yeah, about plumbing or, and it doesn't mean to go out drinking. So yeah, Or an intestinal disorder. You know, it's not necessarily a, a word from uh, this year in particular, but I've, I've always been bothered by user... Uh, and user, which is a person. Um, I, when I was out at Facebook last year, I remember talking to the designers there about the the, fate, the person behind the face of Facebook. 
And I think the thing that's interesting about designers is that we implicitly get that, right? We implicitly understand that communication is what people do with each other. And in some ways, I think where we've derailed in our language, and, and I think you made this point really well, Michael, is the degree to which maybe some of these cues are coming from the wrong place. So if we mm -hmm. took our cues from each other or from from artists or from creative thinkers who are, by their very nature, original thinkers. The Rebecca Solnitz and the Stephen Sondheims are great role models, but so are many of the people that we know and work with, writers, readers, teachers, designers, makers, who are about thinking about things in, in, you know, in terms of their authenticity, their originality. Then maybe we, we don't think about users so much. We, don't th we think about people. I mean, this was really brought to bear a couple of years ago when I remember being in many meetings where I would hear people talk about metrics online and instead of referring to people they refer to people as eyeballs and I wanted to just oh, jump, jump oh. out of my skin right so in a sense it's like this kind of disenfranchised Frankenstein thing where the language we should be looking for is the language of these people who inspire us not the language of the kind of metrics and statistics that make us all into kind of homogenized uh, you know same old same old instead of individuals and, and um, audiences who are not just made up of, of avatars and acronyms, but real people. Jessica, beautiful note to end on. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our website is designobserver.com. You can find links to Jessica's Paris 140 series and all the other things we talked about today. Between episodes, keep up with Design Observer on Facebook and on Twitter. Please let us know what you thought of the show, and if there's something you want to hear us talk about next time, let us know that too. If you're hearing us for the first time, you can subscribe on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud. And if you're not listening already, please tune into our other podcast, Design Matters with Debbie Millman. A big thank you to our sponsor, MailChimp, for sponsoring the observatory. Teddy Blanks wrote our theme music. Our producer is Blake Eskin. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Jessica. See you next year.